When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal <laughs> under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Little girl, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Fantastic job, girls. Thanks. Would you give them a round of applause for that? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you can take that too. Yeah, they did great. Go ahead and grab a seat, uh, get adjusted, go ahead and get, get yourself comfortable. And I thought it'd be fun to have them read it because the, the story is about a, uh, a girl at and around 12 years old, just like uh, those young ladies right there. You did a beautiful job, girls, just a beautiful job. Today, as we, we, we try to get inside uh, another story in the life of Jesus for ourselves, uh, I'd like to take it from the vantage point of just, just one. Just, just one person, one, one really special person, who's near and dear to all of our hearts, but sometimes that one person doesn't get all the attentiveness that they, they really deserve from us. Today, I just want to talk about you. Just, just you. How are you doing right now? Like, like really, really doing. Uh, I, I know we all think of ourselves as a little bit too selfish, so it doesn't feel comfortable going down this road, and maybe even we feel like we've got a little bit of closet narcissism that might pop out at any certain point. So we're not used to opening up that question of making it all about ourselves. But I think the time comes where you are going to throw out of line everything else that is around you without taking a good, caring, attentive look at what's going on inside of you. What about you when you're taking care of everybody and everything 
else. Uh, inside the story of the dead daughter and the bleeding woman, you got the story of two different caretakers, really. They're, they're running around getting everything done. You've got a dad who's running around trying to find solutions for his sick daughter. She's hurting. That's his job. He's provider. He's protector. And he needs to come up with an answer for her and fast. And that's why he goes running to Jesus for help with getting the answers and getting the job done that's on him as dad to do. Meanwhile, you have the bleeding woman who's been doing everything she could and should for 12 straight years. Going to the doctor, keeping her appointments, getting a second opinion, a third, then a fourth, probably trying some experimental treatments, taking money out of savings that she couldn't afford, borrowing money she didn't have for treatments that weren't going to work anyway. She's taking care of everything for her. But what about her? Sometimes you can lose yourself in the process of everything that you're trying to take care of and get done. But if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus and you're getting familiar with his voice and how he moves in and around us, he doesn't just care about helping you get done with all the stuff that is on you to be responsible to do. At the end of the day, he cares about her. Jesus cares about him. And Jesus cares about you. If you just rewind through a couple of the teaching series we've done this fall here in the life of Lake Point Church, uh, just before this, we were in Mark chapter 9. It's the story of another dad. Uh, this time it's a son who's, who's, who's being attacked. He's at risk, in danger every single day. And that dad is dragging the boy to Jesus, and it's getting worse. And, and in the middle of that, instead of just like fixing the problem and dealing with the son and taking care of the stuff, he just took a very thoughtful moment with that dad and asked, how long has it been like this? What's that like on your heart? What about you? Or before that, we went through Mark chapter 4, which is, it's not a narrative story. That, that one's a parable. But in the middle of this illustration, you could have been fixated on the, on the great mustard tree that's going to grow or the seeds that are going into the ground and everything that God is trying to grow here, there, and everywhere. And instead, the fixation of the story is, is on the soil. So it's like, how's the soil doing right now? How ready is it to receive? How are you doing? Is what Jesus cares about the most. A lot of you. <laughs> a lot of you are doing a really darn good job right now taking care of everyone and everything else. Why? Because that's what you do. And you are a responsible adult. You make a positive contribution to, to the world around us. And thank you for doing that, by the way. I, I hope that other people thank you for getting it done as well. But what I want you to know is at the end of everything that you're doing and everything that you're responsible for, Jesus just cares about you. I, as a pastor, just I care about you. And even though they don't always ask, act like it, you got either kids in your life or parents in your life or colleagues or, or friends or other family members who, as much as they appreciate the stuff that you get down, done for them, so many of them would say what they care most about is just, just you. And so as comfortable as it is to turn that spotlight on yourself and, and to receive the fact that you matter, let's go there today. Because that's how these moments play out in the life of Jesus and what he's directing at you right now. Uh, there, there was a fancy leader in, in church history. His, his name was Augustine, born in 354 A.D. 
And what made him kind of fancy is he's the biggest name to come in church history since the, the characters that made their way into the Bible. Right, like after Jesus, you got, you got Peter and Paul, and then a couple other apostles and this and that, and then the Bible kind of closes off, and some other people come through the pipeline, and then one really, really big, important, fancy name comes along, and it's, it's Augustine. Anyone who gets into church history knows about this guy. And uh, one of his most famous works, or probably the work that he's known for, is called Confessions. And in it, he writes about his inner life, his growth with God. It kind of reads like you're getting inside of a guy's journal entries, but, but he knew it was going to be read by others, and he's just putting real stuff on the table. His thirst for God that's finding satisfaction, where does God's love show up? But it's messy, so messy. He, he talks about his doubts. He gets into the conflict of intellect and faith, and how do I bring these two together, and is it going to work by the time it all gets sifted out? He, he goes into length talking about his lust, adultery, the bed he shares with a, a concubine and how sex is the single biggest reservation he has of giving his heart fully to God. He's known as, his most famous prayer is, oh dear Lord, make me chaste, just not yet. This doesn't sound like a guy who's heading his way towards saint status. And even after all this, he does a lot of messed up things where you would not your, want your child to be friends with this person. And at the same time, the way he went at it was a true spirituality, which opened people's eyes because everyone up until that point thought that religion was there to get you behaving better. And if it can't get you to behave better, at least look like you're behaving better. And along comes a man who just throws his ugly mess on the table of what is going on inside him. He said, Jesus, with that mess laid bare before you, I want to see what you make of a person from here. And at the end of that day, isn't that the best that any of us could possibly do? Lay down the inner core, as ugly as it might be, and see where your grace and love from God show up in the middle of that. I was, I was going through my own journal uh, this, this week, and for the record, that this ain't going to happen often, all right? So don't, don't get used to this. But uh, April 8th, 2022, I, uh, I went to see a friend today, and I was just surprised, frustrated, feeling defeated, really. that I've got stories I keep ruminating over. Three families in particular, rejection that I've experienced. And it goes, at this point, these stories are years old several years old, and I, I, I get into names and the stories and why they're kind of eating at me. That's, that, that, that's not for years. I, I don't think that's constructive, but to, to get to the point, it's I'm frustrated that I'm not more healed. I'm frustrated because I thought I was healed. I, I knew myself to be healed, but, it, but it's like the, the, the point of healing where I was standing for me to stay healed, but the healing moved over here, and to stay healed, I had to move forward with it and at the same time and moving forward it's like I can't just push ahead I got to lean back into Jesus and how does this all work the, the the whole wording of the journal entry is actually just kind of messy and convoluted and, and hard to put in a meaningful way in front of you but it was just a moment where I'm, I'm trying to capture what's going on inside my own soul it's not here's how my day or what I'm thinking about in this moment or what's frustrating me right now but it's like what is sticking to the inside of who I am at a soul level that I carry it wherever I go, even when I'm not thinking about it? And how do I open that up to Jesus in a meaningful way that healing and wholeness comes out of that? 
How is it with your soul? Uh, that, that's a question that gets asked in the Wesleyan tradition. It's really kind of fun how they, they, they set it up. Instead of, how are you? How's your day? What's new? The, the salutary greeting amongst Wesleyan is, how is it with your soul? And, and, and don't you think it'd be kind of fun to be asked that question so often that you get used to finding an answer and being able to readily identify it and, and speaking it out in a meaningful way with someone else? This would make a difference for us all. And, and this is what I want to talk about today, where that which Jesus did with his death and his resurrection, it wasn't a transaction just to get you into heaven someday. It was to open up a gospel with you that would be meaningful at the most meaningful part of who you are every day of your life. And instead of settling to take our prayer life, coming out of 10 days of prayer, instead of settling for here's what's bothering me today or here's where I could use a little help or amongst all the responsibilities and lists of things that I'm trying to get done, instead of asking for God's help to just get it all done, what if I got good at saying, here is how it is with my soul? And Jesus, I'm praying it back to you. And see what you do at a core level with somebody like me. We got to get to this point. We got to get around to identifying that which it is inside of us, naming it, turning it into a prayer, and seeing how a great God like Jesus meets even that. So uh, look, look back with me in the story. Let, let, let's go there in the story, and uh, the story of the dead daughter and the bleeding woman, and let's look at what's going on in their soul. Go back to verse 22 at the father's grief, and I would label this as an acute kind of grief, right? It's, it's sudden. It's out of nowhere. In case you don't know, 12-year-old girls are supposed to be healthy. This is not the father's worst dream come true, because no one would ever dream that this could come true with their own 12-year-old little girl. And on top of that, he, this is a dignified man. A man who's used to having answers wherever he goes. He's a synagogue leader. And important differentiation here is this, is this is not his job. This is not his profession. He did not go off and get a professional education on being a synagogue leader. Uh, uh, no special training. This is not his career choice. He has a different career. He's essentially volunteered for the role. It's kind of like being a, a president of a local club or civic organization. Was there an election campaign? No. Chances are no one else wanted to do it. Chances are no one else cared enough to do it. But, but he was recognized as this is the person who cares. He cares about his own worship with God. And he cares so much that he cares about other people's worship with God. And he cares enough that he's going to put in the extra time that it takes to make the arrangements and the situation so that other people can just come in and make their worship with God what it's going to be. He's doing so much good for everyone in the community. And along comes a day where after doing so much good for everyone else, He's not good enough to get the good done that needs to take place for his own little girl. And you know how defeating that has to be to a man's soul in that moment. After helping here, there, and everywhere, the one place that matters most. And you can't get the job done because you're not good enough. Some of you know what this feeling is like. I know, I know you in this room. So many of you are so successful. And not successful by just checking off the normal boxes. You're successful because you notice the people part. Yes, you go to your job, and you know what it takes to fulfill that job description with excellence. But in the middle of that, you care so much about the people that you work with. You're the ones who listen to the stories and carry them on your heart and turn it back to a prayer because the people matter. 
Or when you coach your, your, your kid's youth soccer team or whatever it is, yeah, you're successful not because you got a bunch of kids with a winning record at the end of the season, but you treated all 12 of those kids on the team like they were worth developing and who they're going to be as, as, as grown-ups that year or as 10-year-olds this year. All of that matters to you, and you pour yourself into that kind of good in that community or in a... Or on a civic level, you're not the person who just gripes about politics all day. You actually roll up your sleeves and do something good for someone else. So at least in your neighborhood or in your network, it's better off because you're there. You're doing good here. You're doing good there. You're doing good. And then in the place where it mattered most, you still had to face the fact that you weren't good enough. And maybe for you, it was just as acute as the day that it was for this dad where the words were delivered. She, she's dead. It doesn't matter anymore. Or maybe someone said to you, I'm, I'm leaving you. We're, we're, we're over. This is, this is over. Or maybe words weren't exchanged. Maybe a trauma took place and a crisis occurred. And it, just what happens at a soul level where your whole world is turned upside down or disappears in a single moment, where you thought you had it under control, you thought you had your positive contribution, Nailed down. And now it doesn't matter anymore. You, you, you take back all the good you did everywhere else. If you could just get this, this one thing, this one person, this one circumstance back. Because you don't know how your world's going to go on without it. That's an acute kind of grief, and it talks a lot about our soul. That's, that's the dad. But by contrast, you, you got the woman who's under chronic grief, right? Took 12 years. 12 years of menstrual bleeding. Just, just awful. The, imagine the loss of, of energy just, just from the iron and the blood loss, the loss of time, the loss of money, the loss of dignity being that. It's just how that would beat down a woman's soul in the middle of it. And that's, that's actually the word that's being used here. The, the word for the kind of suffering that she's under is the same word that they use when it's talked in the scriptures of someone getting whipped or, or tormented or, or purposely tortured. Right? This is like purposely beating her down every single day at a physical suffering and an emotional shame. It's just dragging her down. And in the Jewish tradition, uh, a woman was labeled as unclean until seven days after her period was done. Not, not wrong, not sinful, just, just unclean. Almost like you might treat someone who's got an obvious poor hygiene love, uh, situation. Like, eh, I'm just going to keep it a little further away, Right? That's what it was like. Or, or more specifically, someone who has the, the flu. Okay, I, I love you, you're a human, all, all this, but like right now, let's just be further apart. And that would be the courteous expectation that I have on you is that you would choose to keep your space from me. That There was a level of contagiousness that was expected and anticipated with the state of being unclean in the Jewish culture. But for her, it didn't end seven days later. It's been 12 years. 12 years without human contact. 12 years without a hug. 12 years without someone meaningfully giving you a pat on the back or just putting their hand on your shoulder and telling you it's going to be okay. 12 years of everyone staying away from her. Sometimes because it was that other person's choice, they knew of her private condition and said, I don't want to stay away from her. Other times, most of the time, just voluntarily because she feels unclean. Imagine herself just shaming herself most days. I'm not worthy. 
of relationship. I'm not the kind of person that's worth loving. I'm not the kind of person that other people connect with. That's been on her soul. That's the loss of her humanity and her wholeness. They're dragging her down. Beating her down, again, is the literal word that's being used here as a chronic grief, just losing, losing, losing. Do you even notice, like, go, go to verse 31, right? When, when Jesus asks, who touched me? What does she say? Nothing. She's not going to answer. She's not going to admit it. Jesus has to ask the question a, a, a second time. She is just not used to meaningful contact. She's not used to someone coming out to, calling out to her. She's not used to someone calling her closer. And, and when she does come forward, verse 33, she does it trembling, and she's fearful. She's just, she was planning to go through the crowd that day as a nameless, faceless, faceless insignificant member of society, maybe even a lesser member of society just like every day for the last 12 years had been. But Jesus calls her out. She's just not used to it. And her whole body is shaking because her soul is not used to getting close to anyone anymore. Just think of how that would weigh on you. Chronic condition where you feel less human every day. The lesser human, or maybe even subhuman at the end of it all. And finally, if I could Imagine to take one more form of grief that's explaining souls that day. It's uh, every, everyone that day in verse 38, it's kind of in an ambiguous kind of grief. A ambiguous grief is when you you're kind of are experiencing a loss of something, and, and then again, that something is still there. Like a, the best example that I could give you is if you've ever had a family member who's gone through dementia or Alzheimer's, it's like they're, they're still there, and then again, they're not there. Or if you had a season of your marriage that's just like bottomed out and was like flatless, flat and, and loveless, and there was just like nothing going on. Was the marriage still there? Yeah. But then, then again, it wasn't there. And, and, and so you're just kind of stuck in this confusing moment of, am I supposed to grieve or am I not? Because the thing's here and it's not here and it's just hard to figure out. And this is what they are in verse 39. You got people wailing and laughing and they turn out to be the some, same people. Like, are we grieving something today or aren't we? I'm not really sure here. This is kind of funny. Then again, it's not funny at all. Like, you just picture the confusion. Like, sometimes grief just has that moment of, at least with the first two, at least they, they know what it is that they're dealing with. Sometimes you're in an ambiguous state of grief where you don't know what you're dealing with. Grief takes many forms, and every single one of them is revealing of our souls and where we're at right now. And can you relate? Can, can you read yourself into this story? Because that's so important in the scriptures. Like, don't let another day go by of just a story in the Bible or a pastor preaching at you. Read yourself into this story. Is your story an acute grief kind of story where your, your, your world was ruined in the snap of the fingers? Or is your story kind of a chronic grief sort of story where you've been losing and losing for a long time now? And it's been taking you to a lesser form of wholeness and humanity. Or are you in an ambiguous grief kind of place where it's like it's there, but it's not there, and I'm tired. I wish it was one or the other. It's grief. Grieving a loss and connecting yourself into one of these characters of the story and saying, Jesus, that's, that's part of my soul that's out there. But what I also point out is grief isn't the only indicator of our soul. It's, it's gratitude there, too. That, that's very much a part of the story as well. Like, it's, okay, of course there's gratitude in the story. 
right? We had two 12-year-old stories that just converged. One's a 12-year-old daughter, the other's a woman who's been bleeding 12 years, and both of them get their happy ending today. So of course they're going to be grateful, but I want you to just think a little bit further. The dad's gratitude was there the whole time. It's what makes the grief so hard. Is you, you, you got the, the sweet moments of, of love and closeness that it was filling up the dad's soul. Everything he shared with his beautiful little girl that God had given him as a gift. He wasn't just grateful that he got her back. He was grateful for all 12 years he had her. It's because that gratefulness is on his soul that makes the grief so acute in that moment. Or, or even think of the woman. After 12 years, you, you might think that someone would give up on God. God doesn't care about somebody like me. And yet that day, she so specifically and confidently cut through the crowd. She wasn't supposed to be there in the crowd. But she knew she could get to Jesus. She knew she would get something. God just reaches out and grabs him like she knows it's going to happen. There's a gratefulness in that woman. So I don't know what God has been doing in her heart up until that day, but I can tell you there was a gratefulness in there that still told her 12 years later, there's still a God who loves me, and today I'm going to get closer at all costs. Gratefulness. That's the other side of being grief. And if we can get used to naming these two things in our life, you're going to get used to naming that which is on your soul right now. And then you're really praying. Then you're really connecting with God then you're really opening up to Jesus what he's really asking about you. It's not just about the stuff that you need to get done to be the responsible human you always are. It's getting to the point of Jesus is saying, what about you? And you got words that are going to form an answer.